Hi, I'm uh, back on the podcast, as you can hear. Just finished the council elections. Seven months of walking up and down stairs. It's done a lot for my aerobic fitness, if uh, if not for my political prospects. I think I'm now held responsible for the Tory party's loss in Newlands Oldburn. Uh, the candidate apparently contacted uh, one of the sort of registered supporters at three o'clock in the afternoon on the day of the election to say that uh, she was hemorrhaging support to me. And uh, and the final results did indicate um, that an awful lot of former Conservatives had voted for me. But uh, in reality, uh, the things that I'd said during the campaign and in, in, in the leaflets that I delivered, heading towards 30,000 of them, um, the things that I said during the campaign, that as long as the voter put a two and a three and a four and a five next to other candidates, if I wasn't elected, their vote would transfer. And so it proved that when I was finally eliminated from the single transferable vote election, the uh, votes, my 700 and something votes transferred to the, the Conservative, nearly the entirety of my votes proved to be de facto Conservative votes. And it still wasn't enough. Uh, she was defeated. And she would have been defeated earlier and more heavily had it not been for me. Because my activities actually got a load of Conservatives who wouldn't have voted at all to turn out and vote for me. And while they were there, of course, they put a two next to her, as I'd suggested they should if they were uh, if they were Conservatives. And to get to the point, um, most of the people um, who will have voted for me and have seen uh, her defeated and a Green candidate elected will hold me responsible, I would guess, for this bad result from a, a centre-right point of view. The election of a, a Green, or as uh, I think, was it Dellingpool, I think, referred to them as uh, as watermelons, green on the outside and red in the middle. Uh, an SNP Green Council for the next five years in Glasgow, I don't think is, is a, a desirable outcome if you're in the centre-right. I don't think it's a desirable outcome regardless where you're on the political spectrum, and that includes... Uh, the nationalist progressive left but that's what's happened uh, we've now got a, an SNP Green Council in Glasgow and to get to the point about um, people not understanding what actually happened in the election and, and there being nothing that can be done about it this is a broader problem in society um, seven months has taught me or re-taught me or reinforced my belief that there's very little you can do to shift people um, in their beliefs particularly if it involves one or two steps where they have to follow you in a reasoning process. And it's it's exactly why um, the law and medicine were always professions. The key point about a profession being, of course, that um, the, the practitioner knows more than the client and they're under professional obligations to act in the best interests of the, the client or the patient. You can't take advantage of the knowledge asymmetry. And the reason why financial products were so terribly missold for decades to huge uh, amounts of degrees of disadvantage for ordinary folk. Lots of pensioners being sold with profits bonds and having really lousy returns and losing vast sums of money to charlatans and shysters. The reason why that took place was because it involved exactly that kind of two or three stage reasoning that uh, folk are not prepared to engage in. You know, you have to think carefully about how much sense it makes to borrow money to buy a house um, and then save money through buying property in order to pay off your mortgage. I mean, even me saying that is tedious, isn't it? You know, it, it, to actually think for a second, I've borrowed money to buy a house, and now I'm going to um, 
pay, not pay that debt down, but instead keep the debt running in order to invest in further commercial property with a view to making a greater profit so that I can finally pay off my mortgage. If you stop and think about it carefully, there's something I missed somewhere in that process. But it continued for decades. It was standard. People took out mortgages and then invested in so-called endowments in it to pay off the mortgage. So they were, they were effectively running a debt. Uh, they, were, they were involved in what a, an, an investment professional would call a kind of carry trade. Uh, they, they borrowed money to invest in one thing um, and kept the, kept the debt running in the other. Uh, so, or they, or they, they were, they were in, a, in a margin call situation. They'd actually put themselves in, a, in, a, in an indebted situation in order to increase their leverage in an investment. But however you look at it, it didn't make a lot of sense, but it continued for decades because anything that involves that little bit of extra reasoning um, tends to catch people out. They find it really boring, really tedious. And the problem with this, it's not just ordinary folk. It's, it's writers and politicians as well. Apparently, after two or three years of debating Brexit, uh, the House of Commons MPs in 2019 were still inviting people in to tell them about the difference between the internal market and the customs union. So all these MPs who had taken strong positions on leaving the EU and were now taking strong positions on Theresa May's bill and all the other amendments, King Clark's amendments and so on. Clark, I think, wanted to keep us in the customs union. These people were taking positions, they were listening to the party whips, they were listening to their voters and they were voting and they were still having to ask specialists to come in and explain the most simple things about the EU, the internal market and the customs union. That is frightening. Simon Jenkins, who's a good writer, um, he's writing in The Guardian today, but he's, he writes in The, in the Times and other uh, publications as well. Jenkins has got a piece about the housing market and, uh, and he's responding essentially to the Tory party's boosterism regarding um, building houses. And he's suggesting that Michael Gove, who has not had a good couple of days, he was uh, being interviewed, I think, on Breakfast Television, and did, I fear, what I would have done in the same circumstances, uh, I I constantly have to audit myself and, and prevent myself doing something uh, like, for example, what Gove did, which is uh, relying on a Harry Enfield um, impersonation of a, a Liverpudlian that would have been dated 10 years ago. But people my age and Gove's age would probably find it hysterical and know what, know what the reference is. So Gove uh, made a bit of an ass of himself on, uh, on television, uh, I think, uh, day before yesterday, I think. Uh, but Jenkins is saying that he's right about one thing, which is that a lot of the boosterism uh, of the government regarding house building doesn't make any sense. So the, the government partially one suspects at the behest of the, the building industry, who uh, obviously make money selling houses. The government is very keen on hitting house building targets. And it's thought to be one of these, I think, uh, sort of valence issues, something that can appeal across a, a range of demographics, voters who would normally support the Tories and those who would uh, lean left uh, are likely to vote in favour of policies like on educational reform or housing or indeed law and order. These are the kind of things that cut across cleavages. So the Tories are committing themselves to uh, building a lot more houses. And indeed, it's one of these things that people forget that it was Tory governments in the past that have built uh, far more houses uh, or organised the building of far more houses and indeed have built more council houses than you'd think, and indeed often more than the Labour governments. So the Tories are fasting in on house building as a, as a policy that might get them through the next election, given the difficulties they're in in other areas. And, uh, and Jenkins is responding to this, essentially agreeing with Gove that a lot of the talk about targets 
um, is a red herring. And really what you've got is a, is a far bigger market failure. So there are, there are things that are um, assumed about stamp duty and planning permission and building houses and housing scarcity. There's all kinds of assumptions being made and they're false. And, uh, and the false assumptions were allowed free reign in 2010-2015 under the coalition government. And large parts of the southeast, um, within the commuter belt, the area where it's possible to travel into London um, every day, you know, the, the commuter belt stretches out across the southeast away from London uh, to about £6,000 season ticket or, or more now. But classically, it used to be a five or £6,000 season ticket and about an hour and a half each way on the train heading towards maybe two hours that was the, the the home counties commuter belt people would and there was there was academic articles published that showed that um people were incredibly rational in terms of trading money for time you can actually see that people who were solicitors and could earn you know 25 or 30 pounds if they worked overtime young solicitors would give up precisely that amount of money uh, on a train in terms of their time uh, and would live in a house just that precise distance away and would pay that amount of money for a season ticket. So so London and the South East was this, you know, perfect exercise in economic rationality where people would live exactly as far away as their income would um, would suggest they would. You know, so you're prepared to spend an hour and a half at work or an hour and a half on a train um, and let's work out what the season ticket costs extra to travel those extra four stops and let's find out how much you save in a house. And if you run a formula, you can predict exactly where solicitors on £60,000 a year are going to live based on, on all the factors that are, that are, in a sense, just rational. And of course, the people doing this don't actually work it out. They just look at houses. <laughs> they look at houses and they, and they try train rides and then they buy the houses. And it's as if there's, a, there's an algorithm running in their head that allows them to arrive at exactly the answer that somebody who uh, was, was calculating as a mathematician would, would arrive at. They arrive at the same answer. So human behaviour is hyper-rational. And 2010-2015, uh, the coalition allowed the kind of development that Jenkins thinks is misconceived. So the, 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 the commuter built around uh, London um, became yet more heavily um, you know dominated by uh, young folk living in, in two-bedroom houses with their own front and back. The, the classic terraced um, brick-built um, house that, you know, on paper allows you to have a family, a small family, or to start a family. Um, you've got a front garden or a tiny back garden, so you think, yeah, the, the, the kid can uh, can play in their, uh, in their trampoline or whatever there. Uh, but, of course, all the rooms, you couldn't swing a cat. And uh, and that the whole thing is terribly small, maybe you know, sixty square meters for a, or fifty five square meters for a tiny two bedroom terraced house, uh, and inefficiently using the land as well. You know, if if you were if you're going to try and maximise housing on that land, never would you build these tiny terraced houses. But that's what does get built uh, when you're trying to attract young folk um, to to commute into London and to and to live in your new development. So the 2010-2015 uh, coalition encouraged exactly the kind of development that, uh, that Jenkins thinks is, is a bad idea and, and continued the process of moving um, ambitious young folk and money and resources into London and the South East, which has been an ongoing problem. The reason why the country is unbalanced, the, the Scottish independence movement is um, possessed of the belief that resources flow from Scotland to London and don't come back. 
Nobody in the rest of England thinks that. The fiscal deficits are calculated by central government for the whole of England, but they're calculated for the Scottish government by the Scottish government. The Scottish government internally produces the so-called government expenditure and revenue Scotland figures. They're not, they're not Westminster figures. Kate Forbes, the finance secretary, and her civil servants calculate them. And there's a massive transfer from only two areas of the UK to all other areas, essentially. The only places that generate big surpluses are London and east of England. And that uh, results in uh, a big transfer through the tax system to all the other areas, including the northeast and northwest of England. So it's not only Scotland that is, that is in fiscal deficit, it's, uh, it's large parts of England as well. And, uh, and what the policies did uh, recently um, under the coalition and then under the Tory majority government, thanks Jenkins, uh, have, they've continued that process. We continue to suck in the most ambitious and most highly qualified young people into London to live in inferior accommodation in, in highly stressed circumstances in order to acquire skills and to acquire the capacity to earn higher wages. And we continue the uneven development, uh, therefore, of the whole country. So the, the, the levelling up agenda of Michael Gove, which is supposedly all about trying to get places like Leeds, Manchester, um, Liverpool, Bradford, um, and indeed the Midlands as well, which has become you know a, a pretty uh, dilapidated poor area, um, to get these places into a better position in order to, to put it bluntly, continue the red wall Tory support um, that got them elected in, in 2019. So Gove's mission is to try and do something that's uneven development and Jenkins thinks that the way they're responding to housing demand is the opposite. They're, they're continuing the policies that caused the uneven development in the first place. And uh, he thinks that the, the elections in 2022 um, where a lot of Tories voted um, against Tory councillors indicate that uh, these policies are, are, are annoying uh, the core Tory support in the home counties. Because every time there's a planning application in the home counties, uh, Tory councillors are torn between recognising the value to them of it going ahead um, if they can show um, that they were opposed to it. So they have, they have to, every time there's a planning application, uh, they have to be opposed to it because nimbyism, not in my backyard, means that existing local Conservatives don't want it to go ahead. But of course, if it gets built, what you're going to have is loads of young folk uh, moving in there, highly ambitious, often highly educated, and more likely to be Conservative voters, certainly um, in the medium term. So you can work on them. So the, um, so the, the Tory councillors um, will vote against these planning applications and uh, they'll often get overturned by central government on appeal by the, by the builders. And, uh, and consequently, you've got this reaction in, uh, in 2022, thinks Jenkins, when uh, Conservative voters in, in these areas are indicating their dissatisfaction with the broad policy of constantly trying to carpet every available bit of land with more of these new soulless uh, little developments uh, with lots and lots of dead ends. The kind of places I've been canvassing in, um, right, even in Glasgow, where you enter but you can never leave, there's a Hotel California development. You could look at the satellite image in Google for as long as you like, but you're going to have to go three or four times before you feel confident in actually moving about the area because all the names are arbitrary. Whether it's called a lane or a street or an avenue or whatever, none of, none of the names mean anything. They're all just randomly allocated. So they, they provide no guide to what the, 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 the place you're entering is. And uh, they all weave and meander uh, around the, the development. It takes a long time before you can find your way both in and out, having leafleted every address only once. 
as opposed to going over the same ground because you've been hypnotised by all the blonde brick. So, um, so Jenkins thinks that there's been a reaction, and uh, so local local conservative voters in the southeast are fed up with the uh, the impact of the government's policies, and uh, he parks to one side the issue of social housing, which is a kind of separate issue. He's, he's mainly talking about planning permission. Um, and how it drives behaviour and uh, and what could be done to change things. With a very brief hiatus in 2007-2008, there hasn't been anything um, that you could identify as a, a consequence of the, the housing collapse. If you think about what happened um, in 2007-2008 when uh, the market finally did what I and a lot of people thought it had to do and uh, and there was an implosion in America in house prices. The, the, the reaction to that in the UK was the destruction of Northern Rock and Bradford and Bingley and the near destruction of H of uh, HBOS, um, Halifax Bank of Scotland, and RBS and the bailouts. But there wasn't a huge impact in terms of house prices. You know, there was, there was a, 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 a stability, but there wasn't a massive downward move in the way that you might expect. I remember John Major's government in the early 1990s, and I remember real downward pressure on house prices. What has happened, uh, as Jenkins notes, has been steady gains. And indeed, in the last couple of years during COVID, there's been really sharp increases in house prices. And uh, it's all driven by low interest rates. So uh, I borrow money for the flat I'm in right now at 1.29%. Um, False. I borrowed it at 1.29 and then I remortgaged it, I think, at 1.19. But it would, it would be hard to imagine money being much cheaper. Um, they were falling over themselves to give me money. Indeed, you can invest money at much higher rates than you can borrow at. So anybody with a mortgage um, is encouraged not to pay off that mortgage because almost anything you can do with the money will yield you more than the cost of the mortgage. And all of this drives house prices, you know, because people find, particularly if they've got a wealthy parent, who can guarantee the final mortgage so they can pay an interest-only mortgage or um, they've got some other means of paying it. But if, you, if you've got a guarantor like a lot of upper-middle-class kids, um, then you can borrow money extremely cheaply and, uh, and consequently house prices get bid up remarkably. I was out canvassing uh, for the local authority election and uh, a young couple were trying to get out of uh, Glasgow, Langside Drive actually, just uh, in the south side, um, expensive area. They were trying to buy a, a property that was on offer for offers over £500,000. I think they said they offered 615 I think, or 605, just over 600000 and didn't get it. And there have been uh, properties uh, selling for like 40% above the, the asking price because money is so cheap. You can borrow money long term so cheap and therefore it just drives prices. So as Jenkins says, there's been an onward uh, and ever steeper increase in house prices driven by this uh, tidal wave of cheap money. The government is desperate to prevent the collapse of the real economy and it has kept interest rates very low and has facilitated enormous lending by the banks. And uh, of course, now we've got 10% anticipated inflation. Uh, we've got inflation running at, I think, 7-8% now, but it's going to be 10% before it peaks. And... Uh, if, uh, if there isn't a moderation in inflation in, in the next uh, six months to a year, such that would convince the financial markets um, that inflation is genuinely going to trend down in the way that the Bank of England suggests, and it's going to be back on target by 2023, I think, they're saying. If that doesn't happen, then there will, there will be a downward revision in house prices, and it will take place uh, with a bang. 
because um, the instant we have to defend the currency and jack up interest rates, uh, that's when we'll discover the limitations of policy. But at the minute, uh, house prices uh, leap forward um, at ever-increasing rates because money is so cheap. And uh, our real preferences, thinks Jenkins, about housing aren't realised because of policy. So he mentions um, things like, for example, the uh, land val the, the the transaction tax, the land we call it the land building transaction tax in Scotland, but the stamp duty, the money you have to pay uh, when you sell the house. Now, from an economic point of view, stamp duty is is paid partly by the seller and partly by the buyer, uh, because it essentially is a disincentive to to offer more money, um, and therefore it has an impact in, on on the price which is going to be borne by by everybody. Um, but, uh, but, the, but the stamp duty uh, that is paid prevents transactions. People have made good gains, don't want to sell the house and have to pay the stamp duty, he thinks. So people will sit on properties that uh, they would otherwise sell and they won't downsize because of stamp duty. Equally, they don't have to downsize because of the council tax. The council tax is fairly modest. People complain about band G and band H. But in actual fact, compared to almost every other country, local authority taxation is peanuts in this country. As I've said before, in 2006, um, I was in uh, Houston, Texas, and on the way to the airport talking to a, a taxi driver. And the local authority taxation that people pay in the US, typically, paying for the local authority, the county, paying for the special administrative district um, for the schools, or sometimes other things as well, and paying state taxes as well as perhaps federal taxes. But the local taxes you can pay, particularly in a declining area, where the cost of providing policing and schooling is increasing, but people who are resource light but skill heavy are moving out. So you're stuck with your house that you can't easily sell, and you've got this massive um, local authority taxation uh, levied on the property, which means that the house is falling in value and you can't afford to sell it at a massive loss. So in the US and in other countries, local authority taxation is massive. In the UK, it's very, very low. And as a consequence, um, you've got people from abroad investing in property and paying council tax as a, you know, uh, the, 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 light, the lightest burden they could imagine. You know, when people from the Far East or the United States discover just how cheap it is to own property and leave it vacant in the UK and find it appreciating value, they can hardly believe it, which is exactly why large swathes of London are owned by Russian oligarchs um, and others are not particularly wealthy but are quite wealthy. They buy property in London as a safe haven um, and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a apparently sound investment. And as Jenkins points out, and I find this quite surprising, something like a third of all the bedrooms in the UK are unoccupied uh, on any given night. And even in London there's a bedroom surplus. So this idea that there's an actual fact in total a shortage of housing in the UK is just simply false. We occupy far more housing than you would think rational. Um, we've got two and a half rooms per person, apparently. Um, right now, I've got three bedrooms and a, and a living room because it was almost as cheap to buy the bigger property and the council tax didn't increase much. Uh, and this was the one that was available when I was buying. So nationally, we've got huge numbers of people occupying large amounts of space. And any rational consumer who was looking to spend their money to maximise the utility if you actually made them pay the real cost of the housing, would occupy far less housing. And the housing they would occupy would not be the housing that we build. So we've got policies in place um, which guarantee the inefficient use of land 
and guarantee that people who uh, presently, if they were being, if they were forced to be rational, would be forced to move, um, aren't forced to move because they're not forced to be rational. So we don't actually uh, put the incentives in place that a place like Singapore would. So we've got a dysfunctional housing market caused by things like council tax and uh, and stamp duty, which serve to actually make a bad situation worse and uh, could easily be fixed. The misery of London, um, as Jenkins points out, doesn't actually prevent young people going there. Um, I read Goodhart's book, uh, The Road to Somewhere, and he was pointing out that London just is a magnet for uh, for young people, accountants, lawyers, uh, engineers, anybody that's got uh, a good university degree in something um, fairly applicable to industry, commerce, design, whatever, is drawn into London because uh, that's where they can pick up the kind of experience that's going to get them better jobs. Uh, and it's also where uh, there's the kind of synergistic network advantages where if you go there you're likely to meet a lot of other people who will be useful to you in the future who will write you references give you jobs possibly form companies with you one of the things that i missed uh, when i was young um, and it's it's a thing that people on the left miss all the time it's just how cheap it is to actually set up businesses um because you, you you tend to think that capitalism is this great force and business is essentially industry and what London, of course, teaches you immediately is that every solicitor, every accountant, every patent agent, everybody who's employed in anything that doesn't involve too much plant machinery, but does involve a lot of know-how, they're all getting ready to head out the door and take the clients with them. <laughs> they, um, if you're running an accountancy firm, you, you know fine well that the, uh, the young accountants are the people who are generating all your income. And, uh, and they can leave at a moment's notice. And uh, even if there are non-competing clauses in their contract, it's extremely difficult to avoid the clients following them. So, uh, so by going down to London, young folk who've got lots of skills and good qualifications um, put themselves in a position where they could benefit massively in the medium term, certainly before they're into their mid-30s. And I can think of a few people I know personally who've done exactly that. Uh, so despite the fact that uh, housing is miserable for folk who don't have large sums of money and travel uh, across London is an absolute necessity for nearly everybody, certainly if you're working in central London, um, despite all of that, uh, London remains a magnet. And by drawing all those folk out of the north, um, broadly defined uh, as being non-London, but by drawing folk out of Yorkshire, Humberside, the Midlands, uh, drawing them down into London, you deplete the north of the kind of people that are likely to uh, make big uh, or produce big positive externalities for their area. In other words, that highly successful uh, young accountant who works highly efficiently and, and as a cost and management accountant makes other businesses run well, that person does their job in London rather than in Huddersfield. And consequently, Huddersfield has just that little bit less in the way of good services available for local businesses. So all the local businesses are deprived of that opportunity to employ the highly skilled cost and management accountant. So they run slightly less well and his wages get spent in London rather than in Huddersfield, which again has an impact on the local economy. Um, so the young folk are drawn out of the north into London uh, and that has a massive detrimental effect on London on, on the north, um, both in terms of uh, the direct loss of skills, but also in terms of the uh, synergistic effects that such people have when they interact with the wider um, community. That's that's the argument that uh, that folk miss about London. People think that London does well, particularly Scottish nationalists, 
London does well because of so-called London-centric policies. But one of the things that London does is uh, demonstrate that despite policy, um, a lot happens for more kind of fundamental social and economic reasons. So it's, it's really hard to put your, put your finger, point to what people think of when they, they mean London-centric policies. When you ask someone, what do you mean by these policies that only favour London? They'll typically mention something like Crossrail um, or the, the spend on the civil service that takes place in central London. But those aren't really policies. These are just inevitable consequences um, of either having your capital. Any country with a capital is probably going to end up having large numbers of civil servants. Or they're a byproduct of the prior success. In other words, it was precisely because London was so successful that Crossrail became necessary. So the, the real benefit of London um, is uh, is not a result, I think, of, of planning. It's a result of uh, a lack of planning in one particular area. I think Jenkins is right about that. The housing market is dysfunctional. But the trouble is that I don't think Jenkins has fully grasped how and why it's dysfunctional and exactly what we'd need to change um, in order to make the whole country uh, more closely uh, mirror the levelling up agenda. And I don't think the levelling up agenda can be achieved through the things they're talking about, spending penny sums, small sums on further education colleges supposedly to give more skills to unemployed folk in, in uh, terrible places like Grimsby or Hull, um, and, and that'll mean that they can get employed locally. That can help, but that's not the big issue. The, the big issue in the UK, um, I think is, Jenkins is right, the big issue is housing. But the solution that he proposes, which is uh, to free up the, uh, the system of, of transactions so as to make it possible for people to do what reason would dictate or to compel them to do um, what reason would dictate. Um, he says that turnover in housing was far greater during COVID when they took away stamp duty. And that's true. And he thinks that that's a huge impact on the market and would benefit um, everybody. And he thinks that council taxes need to be higher in order to prevent uh, a lot of the house hoarding, if you like, that takes place. And I think that's true as well. But he hasn't taken his argument nearly far enough. As so often, the, the real problem in the UK is a problem of democracy. Um, and as as usual, we head back to Plato. Um, you can't win a debate with uh, an ordinary person who confirms the public and their prejudices. And I'd add that the longer an error is persisted in, the harder it is to see a way out of it in a democracy with a, a four or a five year electoral cycle. Um, the, uh, there's an old saying, in land value tax theory. Uh, I think that the American George um, said it, that the world belongs to the living and not the dead. But of course, the people who are about to die have got votes and the people who stand to benefit from their dying um, have got votes too. And we end up in a situation where um, the, uh, the world um, over time is owned by those who were lucky enough to have dead ancestors who bought property. And that's the fundamental problem none of us can face up to. Um, we've got us in a situation where the very poor, uh, particularly if they fit into certain groups, and those who are rich but not necessarily of high skills and high income, but these groups are being advantaged in the way that we run our affairs. And Jenkins hasn't really grasped the problem. And if we don't grasp the problem, if we don't recognise uh, what we've done by way of expanding higher education, 
given loads of people qualifications, having relatively high migration, and yet not looking dispassionately at the housing market, which has been a problem in the UK, much more so than in other countries, but a problem in the UK for a long time. Uh, if we don't look at how all these things fit together, then we're in big trouble. And it's going to be a problem that's going to um, have huge social consequences over decades. Um, and it could lead to some fairly major um, antagonism between groups of voters and uh, and between generations. But as I say, Jenkins is, is right that there's a problem, but he hasn't understood the, the size of the problem and the real cause. And, uh, and the cause is uh, we the people failing to recognise what our fundamental resource is as a people. The fundamental asset we've got is the right to demand money for being here. It's, it's, it's hard to actually um, absorb fully the force of that, but that's what it amounts to. Um, the Americans claim uh, tax from US citizens on worldwide earnings. Now, in actual fact, there's, there's tax write-offs for double taxation. So it's very rare for an American to be taxed twice in the same income. But the Americans say, if you're a, if you're a citizen, they, you'll pay us tax on your worldwide income or you'll renounce your citizenship and not be a US citizen. Now, the United States is the kind of place that can make that stick because you really want to keep your US passport. You'd be struggling without it if you're an American. Um, and uh, and even if you acquire a second passport and uh, and get out of the US without renouncing your citizenship and thereby try to escape the, the global reach of their taxation, they've got the kind of resources that can make their promises uh, stick, you know. So the, you might be able to escape, um, I don't know, the Spanish state. You know, maybe Spain could make its uh, its threat stick that if you, if you move somewhere else, it wants a slice of your worldwide income. Uh, the US probably can make it stick. Uh, their their law enforcement, their extradition uh, uh, treaties, their powers are such that uh, it would be unwise to try and escape Uncle Sam. You know, you're going to have to go through the process of having him assess your assets. If you own more than $2 million, you can't renounce your US citizenship without, uh, without getting Uncle Sam to assess your assets. And then once you've paid what you're due, then you can renounce your US citizenship. So... Um, but most countries can't do that. The, the, the great asset that countries have is the, the right to say, if you want to occupy this piece of space or do this thing here, you're going to have to give us money. The Scottish government was um, attacked for accepting 700 million uh, for the seabed licenses for these offshore turbines. Uh, people thought they were worth a lot more than that. You find out what they're worth, of course, in an auction. One of the suspicious things about the Scottish government's auction was that apparently the maximum price you could bid for some of the areas was capped. <laughs> Who has ever heard of an auction with a, ma a maximum price cap? But uh, but anyway, the uh, the, the price uh, is uh, what you get if you if you put it at open auction. And if you want to find out what it's worth to give a bit of the Moroccan um, Atlantic coast. If you, if you want to give somebody exclusive use of a piece of the Moroccan Atlantic coast for 20 years so that they can have a fishing uh, enterprise, then you can you can have an auction and uh, and people will bid for it. Now, a country fundamentally um, has got that asset because they've got sovereign power and therefore they can deny you the right to be there um, and they can seize what you have and they can jail you. So, so sovereign power is the right to demand things for being in the territory. 
and uh, typically countries are able to exercise sovereign power within the area but if they try and actually become extraterritorial like the US they suffer difficulty so few few countries can actually successfully demand things um, from outsiders the great advantage a country has is the ability to demand taxation payment rent for people occupying bits of territory so if you want to actually find out what it's worth to have a piece of central London what you have to do is have an open auction and if you want to prevent the person who bought it in 1850 or 1950 or 2000 for that matter if you want to prevent them becoming a rival feudal lord to the sovereign power of the people or the state so in other words if you want the British people or their representative the Queen in Parliament if you want them to remain sovereign you cannot allow others British or not you can't allow them to become feudal lords and what we currently do with our property laws frankly thanks to our failure to use land value taxation because we don't use land value taxation we allow people who buy property to become feudal lords who rival the state they rival the sovereign power they rival the queen in parliament because although we restrict what they can do with that uh, piece of land so we deny them planning permission so you buy it you buy a house and uh, you can't actually sell the underlying ground to somebody who wants to build a big block of flats we also don't charge them the, the fundamental underlying rent that that piece of land would be worth if somebody did come along and say to us the sovereign people uh, please um, I would like to I would like to build a block of flats on that piece of land um, what's it going to cost me every year to, to rent that from you so if we actually demanded from people uh, a sum of rent equivalent to the uh, highest rent that could be achieved in an open auction then almost everybody who's benefited mightily from London and the South East's explosive growth would have been forced out of there over the last 50 years and indeed most of the explosive growth wouldn't have taken place over that small area it'd have taken place over a much bigger area because the synergistic advantages of being in close proximity with all those patent agents and lawyers and accountants would have had to contend with the advantages of having much lower rent in order to have the properties in the first place so what you'd have seen is the growth of the UK's economy but spread over a far greater area and it would have it would have happened across the whole of uh, the the London the southeast uh, even if London the southeast because of the existence of the Lloyd's insurance market the city of London even if that had meant that 60 or 70 years ago uh, when the sort of you know modern post-industrial age really began to get underway and, and services and so on became much bigger than industry even if that had to take place uh, in London first and foremost it would have spread across the whole country very fast and it wouldn't have just been London so the UK would have seen explosive uh, economic growth just as it did but it would have been spread much more evenly and there wouldn't have been a necessity to try and level up the north but what we've done is we've allowed people who were lucky enough to own property in London when all this started to benefit they essentially have crystallized the gains that should have been gains for the whole community because we've allowed them to be de facto um, feudal lords um, so, so when Simon Jenkins says we have to have much higher council tax well sort of what we really need to do is to recognize that when someone owns a property they don't own in perpetuity the underlying land um, that belongs to the living not the dead that belongs to the world entire or the British people entire 
um, and we've, we've neglected to um, act on that insight um, in a way that would upset those who presently are advantaged because most of those who would hugely benefit um, don't recognise that they would benefit and don't actually want to grant that, the state that kind of power and can't be bothered listening to an extended explanation in the, in the way that I mentioned earlier. The reason why we have to have professions um, is because people won't listen. And people won't listen to an argument about land value taxes. 150, I think, I think 150 years ago, maybe just slightly less than that, uh, the, the proponents of land value taxes began to have a hold in America. Loads of people understood the argument and it began to become a popular movement. But it went against the grain when it came to land ownership because um, in the United States, you typically own the underlying mineral resources of the land that you buy. So loads of people have got small plots where oil even is actually extracted and uh, and people own the oil. So the, the, the argument for a land value tax and that the Commonwealth should be seen to be owned by all of the citizens in the Commonwealth, the underlying rental value of the Commonwealth is for all the citizens of the Commonwealth. Um, that argument was hugely attractive to a lot of people and, get, and gained purchase and credibility. But it ran against the grain of um, seizing land, um, the the idea of manifest destiny and, and head west and grab all you can hold, and the Homestead Act and uh, you know grabbing I think it was 140 acres you could have or 280 for bad land and then that was yours forever and you could you could pass it on to your kids, um, so the the land value tax argument is a powerful powerful argument and it makes absolute perfect sense. But the trouble is that, um, like all such slightly complex arguments, it's hard to make in a democratic society. And there are countervailing forces, and they tend to be better organised and they have the ear of government. So all the people who are going to pass on really expensive houses to their kids, and of course, they don't really pass on the house, they pass on the land. The house is worth damn all. You can build these houses that people are passing on. These £10 million houses can be built for 900000 in terms of building materials. It's the underlying land that's valuable. Um, and it's because it's valuable precisely because uh, we charge um, 250, 300 a month for council tax rather than 1500 a month in land value tax. Because the best use of that underlying land for that house you're passing to your heirs and successors in London, the best use of that underlying land is for a completely different business that, would have, that could pay 1500 a month in land value tax. But we allow you to pass on a house worth 10 million because the, the locational benefits of that house uh, are not actually captured in the council tax that we demand from you. So what we've got is in a hell of a pickle. And the solution to the problem, as I say, um, is very difficult precisely because a pickle, a stupidity persisted in for a sufficient period of time becomes really difficult to unwind. Um, the vested interests become really good at lobbying for the continuation, which is exactly why... Um, the council tax is banded and there's a, an arithmetical relationship between the, the top and the bottom so that the bottom can't be too much uh, a multiple of the uh, the top can't be too much a multiple of the bottom uh, and there are discounts available for uh, single people and there are often discounts available for non-occupancy and all of this just encourages what we've got which is complete and utter stupidity uh, on, a, on a massive scale uh, large parts of, as Jenkins says, large parts of, of the of the uh, West End in London are uh, empty of people because the property has been bought with a view to medium term capital gains rather than actual use. We wouldn't have to worry about getting people to let out property uh, and make best use of it and make best use of their bedrooms 
um, if they were forced to pay a land value tax based on the underlying uh, value to the entire community to the best user of the land. Um, all of a sudden, the couple who previously have complained about £300 a month council tax for a vast sprawling property would be faced with reality, which is that uh, the, the, the developers could use this plot for, uh, for far, far better purposes, creating jobs locally, uh, and you're now faced with a, a land value tax, which has collapsed the value of your property. I mean, this is the difficulty. The, um, the imposition of a land value tax now, um, rather than the steady imposition over the last 60 or 70 years, would mean a complete collapse of the of the value of the, of the property. People couldn't get um, what they the, what they were expecting for their house, because their house was never valuable. The only thing that was valuable was the underlying land, and the positional advantages that had been created by the entire community when the economy grew. And the instant you force them to recognise that that we the people, as it were, um, are the uh, owners, the fundamental sovereign owners of the, the entirety of the land. And you can own movable property, uh, and you can, uh, in, in a notional sense, you can own you can own the house. But uh, if the if the underlying land becomes hugely valuable because the community um, grows and becomes prosperous and builds a railway station right next to your house, you weren't responsible for that general economic growth. You weren't responsible for the building of that railway station. So the idea that we should allow you to become a a de facto feudal lord and crystallise the benefit of the collective activity in an increase in the value of your house is just silly. We should be rewarding people for doing things that are useful, not for uselessness. The society shouldn't belong to the, the rent extractors. It should be, belong to the, the productive. You know, if you, if you want to have a Singapore, if you want to turn a swamp into a superpower in 70 years, then what you have to do is encourage the right kinds of behaviour. You want to discourage mere occupancy. You want to discourage the use of carbon. You want to discourage laziness. You want to discourage rent-seeking. You want to encourage work. You want to encourage enterprise. You want to encourage investment. And by allowing people to simply sit on property and crystallise gains that are the result of general social progress, it's silly. It was silly 300 years ago when this was pointed out, and it's silly today. But the trouble is, when you've persisted in silliness for long enough, it becomes awfully difficult to find a way out of it. Jenkins considers social housing to be a separate issue from what he's talking about in the article. But social housing is a massive, massive problem. I was speaking to a friend yesterday who's an ardent Scottish nationalist and he's got a degree in economics. And I think he hates it when we agree, uh, when he knows that I'm right and it's, it's inconvenient for him. I was talking about the number of times I was out canvassing, knocking on doors and delivering leaflets. And you end up in a, a block of flats which... If they were sold, each flat would be worth maybe 200000 If they were rented, they would rent for maybe 1200 But they're actually being rented by people who are paying 450 maybe 500 And we can park for the moment um, the, uh, the issue of whether they're actually paying the rent or the, or the housing benefit is paying the rent. But you, you're talking about social housing, um, where uh, if, the, if, the, if a developer... If I, if I owned a piece of land in, in urban Glasgow I, and I could get the, the local authority to give me planning permission, I would make an absolute fortune, but I couldn't get planning permission. Uh, I would be asked for some sort of sum of money for community benefit um, if there was going to be building on it in order to try and prevent um, me getting this massive windfall. Now, if a housing association owns a piece of land, uh, they can probably get um, planning permission because it's thought to be a good thing. 
And, uh, and what you actually end up with is a situation where you're giving away all the benefit that you could have without ever making an explicit decision about how much welfare you want to give somebody. To put it at its bluntest, if you let somebody live in a property that um, would essentially demand £1,400 in land value tax, say, from a, a, an actual owner, if, you, if, if a society imposed a land value tax and flats could be built and sold for £100,000, but every month you'd have to pay an absolute fortune in land value tax because building the property is cheap, but its positional advantages are so great that we the people demand huge land value tax for anybody that wants to live in that property right in the heart of Glasgow, right in the heart of the West End. So if you build a property um, for peanuts money and sold it uh, for peanuts, but the land value tax was huge, then the people living in it would be hugely highly productive workers living in the city centre, prepared to pay a massive sum in land value tax every month because their time was valuable and they didn't want to travel in from the suburbs. So property would be very cheap um, in a lot of places because ownership wouldn't confer the right to avoid the land value tax, which any sane society would impose. Now, with a lot of social housing, what you do is you ignore the reasoning that stands behind a land value tax. And you say, here is a poor person who can't earn a lot of money or they're on benefits. Therefore, let's give them this property, which wasn't particularly expensive to provide because um, building property isn't expensive. Uh, and the housing association can offer them it because it was able to get planning permission from the city council because it's a housing association and on the side of the angels. So you end up giving this person um, effectively £1,400 worth of property benefit, welfare, if you like, position, of positional advantage. But they don't actually get that amount of utility from it because they are not um, a really highly productive worker who needs to live in the city centre. Um, so you end up in a situation where if they could sublet it, they would. If you, if, you, if you gave somebody this affordable housing and you said you can live in it or you can sublet it, the first thing they would do is move 100 miles away and take £1,000 a month to buy food and other good, good things. You're forcing them to accept what an economist would call a benefit in kind or an accountant would call a benefit in kind. You're giving them a massive benefit in housing location which is way beyond anything that they would choose to buy um, if you gave them the, the cash equivalent. And you're also giving up your right to demand um, the revenue from that location, which any sane society would demand. And all of these decisions um, seem generous and, uh, and appropriate, and they all sell on the doorstep. The Scottish Government right now are talking about the importance of affordable housing and they're promising to build far more affordable houses. And all of this comes out in the wash. All of this ends up in your balance sheet at the end of the day or your profit and loss account. It all comes out. If you create a situation where productive workers can't live where they work, and, for example, they spend huge amounts of time driving to East Renfrewshire and packed roads because you've built cycle lanes along the, the side of the road, which have caused massive congestion, you can do all these things. And to return to my point about the SNP Green Government of Glasgow, you can do all these things, and each individual thing um, seems to make some kind of sense and sells well on the doorstep. And you can be defiant and posturing and aggressive and confident and, and all the rest of it. But the bottom line is it all comes out at the bottom um, of, your, uh, of your accounts. And at the minute, what we've got in Glasgow and in Scotland more generally 
is a dysfunctional economy that doesn't produce the kind of goods and services that those who would wish for a progressive society that helps the poor uh, would wish for. And it seems as if little can be done about it. Because when it comes to something like, for example, um, working out what you're doing when you grant people housing um, that they couldn't afford to pay for if the society actually made the housing the correct price by imposing the kind of taxes that any sane society would impose. Uh, we can't seem to have a discussion about that process. We just think it's a good thing. And th this might be an, an inevitability. Maybe democracies can't actually run their affairs better than that. Maybe this is why, um, and it's controversial to say it, but I'll say it anyway, maybe this is why you need a Lee family, you need a Lee Kuan Yew. Um, if the Singaporeans can take a swamp that Malaysia didn't want and turn it into a phenomenal um, country, um, city-state, um, if they can do that in such a short period of time with wise policies, um, and we can't do it, we can't even reform London's housing market because we can't have a sane discussion about what taxes are for, what the nation's fundamental resource is, what it means to have a commonwealth, and what you should do in order to run with the grain of human nature and to produce the kind of activity that you want to produce. If we can't have that discussion, maybe we deserve to be poor. Maybe we deserve to become Argentina. Argentina was once a great country and is now devastated through bad policy. So maybe we deserve that. Maybe that's what has to happen. Um, I said to my pal yesterday, and I've said this many times and I've said before, shouldn't. Every day for some period of time I wish for Scottish independence because every single day I'm so exasperated by the stupid things that are said. I want to see the look in someone's face. I want to see their face when they're finally forced to eat their own cooking and finally forced to see the consequence of the policies they champion. So Simon Jenkins is right. There's a massive problem in this country of un uneven economic growth. And there's a, that, that problem pretty much traces back to the housing market. Uh, he sees it as mainly an expression of other problems. Um, I think it's in actual fact the source of the problems. We don't levy the correct taxes. And because of that, we end up um, with Londinium, the city-state that sucks in all the resources in terms of human capital um, before spewing some of them back out. Um, but we, we, we've had this for 70 years at least in its most intense form. And the solution is, is straightforward. The trouble is it involves destroying a present cohort of windfall gainers. And like all windfall gainers, they don't particularly want to be destroyed. Thank you.